is the Hardcore Marketing Show. I'm Casey Cheshire, your host of this epic journey. And today's show sponsored by Cheshire Impact on a mission to help you maximize your use of marketing automation and CRM, CheshireImpact.com. Bam. Now today's guest, today's guest is a superstar. He's been traveling the country, 20 cities, 10 days. We all have lost track. He is the founder and CEO of Skyward. Who are they? Really cool. We're going to talk about them. Leader in content marketing. It's a platform. It's also a services provider. We'll get into that. There's more. He's the author of Storynomics, book that's out. What, what about this book? New York Times said, you must read this. They literally said that. Finally, serial entrepreneur, scuba diver, hiker, all-around marketing, badass, Tom Gerace. How are you, sir? Wow, Casey, thank you. <laughs> Even I want to meet me now. That was great. Yes. I appreciate it. Thank well, you. Meet yourself, the- man. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, that's fantastic. So I want to I remind everyone the theme, and, and it's perfect that you're here for this. The theme, uh, we have this roadmap for maximizing marketing automation called the, the Success Index, and it's all about getting to know your buyer first and doing the steps you need to do to prepare so you're not just you know, paying for some expensive tool and just blasting emails to people. And it's just ruining their day and you're not getting any of the results you wanted. So we have this roadmap and we're at the point now where we're talking about content, content marketing, content strategy. Sometimes people don't even have the content. And so I wanted to bring you in here, give everyone the literally the best information possible. And we love starting out by smashing myths. You know, sure. what kind of marketing strategies are out there you're seeing, especially around content creation or content strategy that just annoy the heck out of you. You know, it's like that kid behind you on the flight and you're just like, no. So smash them for us at the beginning. What do you got? Yeah, Casey. So I think, look, if we're coming out of the gates, the first myth that we have to smash is that it's business as usual. Uh, You know, as human beings, we're really bad at sensing when seismic change is coming. We kind of expect the world to go through little ups and downs and be within a certain limit and we can handle that. We can manage that change. You know, life is in balance. But we're really bad at detecting when there's been just a massive change to the rules and life's going to be different after that point. And we have just hit that massive pivot point in marketing. Interesting. Because, you know, for the better part of 200 years, uh, since Ben Franklin was a publisher in Philadelphia, if you wanted to build a brand or if you wanted to connect with other business customers, the rules were pretty simple. You'd go out and you'd find the stories they love in newspaper, then radio, then TV. They were captive audience there, so you could interrupt those shows and insert your own message. And with enough spend over enough time, you could earn brand awareness and brand affinity. And the same thing has been true you know, in the B2B space. We've been able to deploy these huge armies of BDRs with dialing for dollars formulas. Armies. (laughs) And absolutely. And the armies have been just banging on the phones, and they are calling away, and with enough luck uh, enough perseverance over time finally they were going to get somebody on the phone to be able to talk to them until now right you know we have now had radical technological shift so that consumers on the ad side have the ability to completely opt out of advertising they can block ads yeah they can ignore them and switch to another device when the ad is on or most commonly they're paying a little bit of money for ad free content uh right. last week netflix announced that they hit an all-time high. Uh, their stock hit an all-time high because they had uh, uh, 125 million subscribers. Jeez. 
that are watching more than 50 billion hours of completely ad-free programming a year. Yeah, I'm, I'm there. Yeah. Yeah, me too, every night. And on the B2B side, yes, to Netflix has become a verb, right? So on the B2B side, multiple verbs. <laughs> the same way, right? Yeah. When, when's the last time you picked up a cold call where you did, when you picked up a phone call where you didn't recognize the number coming in? Right. I mean, seriously, ask yourself. Yeah. Unless you've got a relative in the hospital, which is yeah. the only reason I find myself doing it in the last year, I will let it go to voicemail. And if it's good, my voicemail says, if you want to call me about whatever you're calling about, or email me, please. Email me. Yeah. Yeah. Don't make me clear off my voicemail box. Right. Um, and that's a huge problem because if if sellers, if businesses that used to use these modes uh, cannot connect with their customers like they used to, this is creating a real crisis. It, we know it created a crisis for the, uh, for the marketing shops. We can see their revenues collapsing. And we know it's creating a crisis for the direct mail shops. We can see their revenues collapsing. But what hasn't happened, the corrosive effect that is not obvious perhaps to your audience yet, is that they are losing brand awareness and brand attention. And that's going to take longer to develop. But you know, these brands that don't adapt, that don't change how they're connecting with their customers, are going to fade as challenger brands replace them. So the first myth, myth buster is what worked five years ago will work today. The second thing is that you know, if we accept that premise that we have to change, and that we need to go in a completely different direction. Well, then obviously the question is, what is the next way we go uh, and succeed? Right. And if advertising gave us a 200-year run, what's going to give us the next 200-year run? Right. And we believe it is through original storytelling. Mm. That is brands creating unique and valuable experiences for their customers that hook their attention, hold it throughout the piece, reward that attention when they're done, and it, and cause them to do, try, or buy something new. Or if it's a brand-related piece, think differently about right. that brand. And to succeed, I'd say one of our misbusters nah, number two is that you have to actually create those experiences. A lot of marketers right. are out there saying, you know, can we get away with licensing some content created by, by media brand A, license from media brand B, license from media brand C, pull that stuff together uh, and, uh, simply, um, and simply curate that content? Right. And they want to do that because curation is easier. Right. They recognize and, there's a problem, hopefully. Right. And then like, well, maybe I could just outsource or not even outsource, just, just go and repurpose content from other people. It's not really even mine. Uh, but right. that way we're not being quiet. We're, we have something to say. So, yeah, we have something because, look, we both know that, that marketing automation is a content-hungry machine. Oh, yeah. And you, if you don't feed the machine, the machine gets angry and it starts sending repetitive junk out to your customers. So, you know, you have to – yeah, crouchy dude. So, so marketers are really under the gun to try to create useful stuff for their customers. Yeah. But the mistake that curation makes is really twofold. The first thing it does, and, and philosophically, the thing that it does that is most damaging, is that instead of differentiate your brand, the primary goal of marketing, it conflates your brand yeah. with everybody else who's curating in the exact same way. So yeah. you know, if you don't have something unique to share with your customers, and you're just pumping somebody else's stuff down your pipeline, and your competitor sees that you're doing that and doing it successfully, they're going to do the same thing. And then all of a sudden, your customers will be like, well, gee, brand A and brand B are giving me exactly the same thing. Don't know any difference between them. And so what you have done 
is the exact opposite <laughs> of what your oh, main goal yeah. was, which is, uh, which is to separate those out and show your customers why you're more valuable. Right. You wanted to stand out and, and show, you, show that you, but instead you're just blurring that brand. You're deleting right. it and you're, you're, you're pushing that thing that you're just one of the other people. One of the right. of the other people, you know, stand, you're, the opposite is standing out. You're just sort of backing away into the crowd. <laughs> exactly. That's not what people want. And it's, I think they're, they don't realize this is what they're doing when they just go curate crazy. Definitely not. And they also, um, they also, when they're going with these big curation plans, don't recognize that they're training their customer to then ignore them. Because people aren't, you know, people aren't stupid, right? If you get an email with the, with the same kind of link from this, link from Axios, link from NextWeb, link from whatever the things that you're, are being curated for you, pretty darn soon you're going to go read Axios and say, what am I missing over there? And you're <laughs> yeah. going to go read the next source. Yeah. Fine. Then they're, then they're opting out of your email and they're going to the sources that they like and right. they really appreciate the introduction as yeah, they're forgetting about the you. intro. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you, it, it turns out you have to do the hard work of creating an original experience that is worthy of your audience in a sustained way if you want to win in this space. There is no shortcut. Um, so, you know, then when you sit down and you say, how do you do that? Right. So if you're a CMO, how do you change that? You know, for many folks, that's a daunting task. Yeah. Because look, the CMO has been a, a, an iterator for years. It yep. has, she has, you know, she has been in the role of just tuning the ad campaign. So go out and find another place to place them. Go out and change the messaging just a bit. Make it an overlay and not a whatever it happens to be. And, and look at those numbers and figure out how we're getting an extra tenth of a point out of our efforts. And at the end of the month, we can feel good because we increased our ad performance 0.3%. That's been the role since, you know, the beginning of time when, then Franklin kicked off this model, but not anymore. Huh. Today, the CMO has to be a change agent, be a change agent inside her organization. She has to go out and say, uh, "We're going to get rid of the old method of, mar of marketing, which is bragging and promising through ads that our customers had to hear." Uh, you can call it features and benefits if you want. We all know it's bragging and promising, right? Right, and. And recognize that the brand has to strike out and do something different. Right. And here's the interesting thing, right? Over the last 100 years, the other sad fact is not only can't we reach our customers, but we have trained them to distrust us. Right. And with good reason. Not only to ignore us, but if ignore us and, and distrust us. Sure. And when right. you get the meeting. So... If, if you're sitting in a meeting and one vendor puts up a slide with it lists a bunch of different features, has the first column be them and their checkboxes for all of them, and then there's the next vendor and they have holes in their list, and there's a third vendor and they have a lot of holes in their list, what do you know about that whole experience? What is your immediate reaction to seeing that vendor's checklist? Well, they made it themselves, so of course they're going to make them look perfect. They gave the system, yeah. yeah. They chose the categories where they went. Right. Okay. So they put that up there to persuade you to take their product. And your immediate reaction is, I distrust you. Right. If they had had a couple boxes that weren't checked by themselves, that might have been, you know, some kind of transparency there. But yeah, if it's yeah. nothing but 100% daisies and roses, if you come, you know, join us. But if you go with these guys, you're going to hate your life. 
Yeah. Not usually that black and white. Yeah. It's, it's, life is never that black and white. Life is never that easy. Um, Unfortunately. You know, my, (laughs) my co-author, Robert McKee is a, is a story, globally recognized storycraft author, uh, story form expert. And Bob points out that a lot of writers lose their audience because in marketing, we're trained to be positive, 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 positive. Yes. I mean, it's pouring rain outside. Marketers going to walk inside and say, (laughs) wow, we sure needed this rain for our flowers. Yeah. I mean, like, that's the marketer's job to get you the best possible perspective on everything they've been doing. Here's the problem when we get to storytelling. The audience knows that that's not authentic. True. The audience knows that in small ways, like spilling a cup of coffee on your pants in the morning and, and in large ways, like, you know, a, a relative getting ill or a company missing a major quarter and having to go through a layoff, things get tough in life. Yeah. And if you're trying to tell them a positive, 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 positive story, they can't relate to it. They can't identify with it. It doesn't feel real or authentic to them. Mm. So, so brands have to, here's another myth buster. You can just tell all of the good of your company. Brands have to acknowledge what we call the negative floor, that life goes out of balance to the negative sometimes. Not because your company did something wrong necessarily, but just because your customer's life is not a happy bed of roses as they're walking along uh, the street. And if we can get out there and say, you know, look, shit happens in life. Yeah. It really does. And, and we know that. So we're going to have a much better conversation. And you're going to trust me much more if I start off and say there's going to be this problem. So um, our client at IBM Security uh, does this brilliantly. If you go to securityintelligence.com, right, they will, um, they will take you to the negative in almost every one of their pieces. And their industry does this, does this powerfully. Interesting. I mean, petrochemical plants attacked by malware. So great. Now you got my attention, right? Because you, get, you start the story with the happy little petrochemical plant manager <laughs> calmly filling his coffee. Right. You know, when somebody from IT walks up and says, um, look, uh, this is not a big deal. We found some malware on our desktop computers, but we're going to just clean those up. Protocol says, I've got to let you know. Uh, we've got the whole air gap with our operating facility, so no network connections over there. We'll be fine. Uh, I'll keep you posted. Hmm. Guy turns around. Walks back to his desk, and before he has his coffee on his desk, in walks the next most senior IT person and said, "Hey, we've got some bad news. Oh no! We, we don't know how, but the software hopped the air gap, and it's sitting on our production systems. And luckily, we have over the last six months worked on ways we can upgrade and clean up the software while the systems are operating." So we don't have to experience, experience entire plant downtime, go through a whole shutdown cycle, which would take you know day off, day, day on, yeah. at least. Um, but uh, we're going through that process right now. And, and obviously, there's some risk associated with that. So we'll keep you posted. We're analyzing that malware, and we'll keep you posted as we learn more about it. Um, and then a minute later, as he's booting up his laptop to start to send a letter to their board of directors, executing on the security protocols, in walks the CTO. Oh. And he says, 
we found specific code in this malware that has only one purpose, which is to shut down the machine that exists only in petrochemical plants. We are under specific attack. Right. Right. So what did they do there? You know, what, what is that story? Uh, that, that is a, a very typical story form, and we don't have time in our discussion today to go through what that form is. But that form takes life from being in balance to being out of balance. And it usually goes out of balance to the negative. It can go out of balance to the positive. You can win the lottery, and then you know, that'll, anything that happens that's good in your life immediately has negative consequences, right? Sure. <laughs> Uh, it's, you know, you win the lottery, all of a sudden, every relative and friend come out of the woodwork expecting you to totally. solve their lives. Right. So, um, and life goes out of the balance. And when it does, a few things happen. That's interesting. The first thing is that change hooks your audience attention. hundred percent. So all of a sudden you have the ability to say, wow, they want to know what happens. They get curious. It it the story or just leaves it at that. They, did, they were able to clean the plant and uh, survive in the end. In part, the, the implication is, IBM doesn't directly state it, but they say because they had implemented standard protocols and had monitoring software that kept uh, this from hopping between multiple machines. Right. So it had learning software that, that looked for, there is new code being spread across the plant and it locked down the uh, network before the plant because huh. the software could spread too far. Uh, but the beauty of that is then IBM was cited on the cover of the New York Times above the fold as the original source of this malware saying there's a petrochemical cyber attack, one of the first actual cyber attacks on an energy facility. And they were covered by the Times, the Journal, everybody pointing to them as the group solved this problem. You can't buy that kind of publicity, you know? No, you can't. So getting that story form right, though, requires marketers go to the negative. Yeah. If you didn't go in and say, shit went wrong in a big way. And, and by the way, you know, you've got to do it multiple times. It was, you, you can tell if you look at that form I just had, right? So he go, he's going in to get his coffee, and all of a sudden, we have a little bit of desktop software problem. Yeah. <laughs> and then no problem, no we're deal. cleaning it up. Uh -oh. right. so this, is, this is value change, right? For around, yeah. Playing around a value pair of secure, insecure, secure at risk, right? And so you see that happening throughout this conversation. And, uh, and then, you know, no problem, it's just the desktop, so we got to clean up. And then, oops, it got over to the plant. But no problem. We have protocols for keeping that running. You're seeing that value chain. And then the one that goes really hard on the negative is, actually, it's code that's specific for us. This wasn't, this wasn't random malware that wandered in. We're under attack. Right. Then we're in the negative. And everybody's heart drops. And you're thinking, what is this poor bastard going to do that's not going to blow up 300 of his friends? Right. And there. Yeah, when the you story. said the CTO was coming in, I'm like, oh, no. Like this. Yeah. Uh, you know. <laughs> they, they never they never come up from the cool dark basement when they, no, they, don't. <laughs> they have layer <laughs> like, oh, no. so, yeah you know that had me hooked to the point where i'm like what happens man here i'll fill out your form let me know what right. happens um, yeah. what a hook so so that it's the form and it's the fact that you went went to the negative on that's that. right and, well and, okay. and that's that's right and that part of you know that is part of story there's sure. there's more than we could go through in an hour uh but uh Bob and I, when we, when we teach our seminar, we go through uh, three major sections. We go through identifying the problem, why people have to change, because we want marketers to have a proper sense of urgency. Right. Uh, you know, we don't take blame for this, but when we started off uh, this seminar series in our research, WPP, the largest media buying house in the world, was at an all-time high, and Netflix <laughs> was struggling. 
Today, WPP is off 40%, uh, and Netflix is at an all-time high. So yeah. we've seen this, you know, so we predicted in the, in the book this change that's happening and, and both business to business and business to consumer marketing. And then we look at what options marketers have. I mean, they can use, they can try to use a logical argument to get their customers yeah. uh, to work with them. They could try to use an emotional argument, you know, sex sells for a reason. Right. But frankly, this new generation, the, the you know, millennials are too tuned into this. They see it. Right. They know they're being played and they reject it. Totally. Um, you know, it's uh, it's obvious. And so now story, though, is pretty unique in its power when done well. I should make that caveat when you tell a good story. Um, because story is actually tied to how our mind works. It's tied to how the human brain functions. Sure. Um, we are uh, story-making and storytelling machines. We use it for our survival. And when you got up this morning and you were thinking about what clothes to put on, you told yourself three different stories. You know, I'm doing the podcast. I need to look like this. I got a date tonight. I need to look like this. I got to, you know, whatever the yeah. thing is. And, and if I wear this outfit, that's going to be that outcome. And you select the outcome that is likely to bring you the most pleasure. Totally. In the end, we're going after pleasure and trying to get away from pain. And I got, so I got the, uh, the chest wardrobe on. This is fantastic. Uh, it's like the Steve yeah. Jobs uh, sneakers, jeans and chest shirt. It's like my That's excellent. uniform. But yeah, I told wow. myself a story. I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to nail this podcast later on today. You know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You do it. And, and you do it, I mean, probably even making a decision, you might tell yourself 10 or 100 stories. Sure. Should I take this right turn? If I take this right turn, there's going to be traffic down on that corner. So, you know, yeah. you're, you're, you're using storytelling as the decision-making engine of your brain. So story is really powerful as a way to, to connect with the human mind when you know how to do it well. Because uh, there have been a bunch of studies. My favorite is out of uh, Princeton. Yuri Hassan uh, is looking at how the brain reacts to storytelling. Mm. And uh, what Hassan is finding by, by measuring using a functional MRI or fMRI, uh, instead of taking a snapshot of your brain like an MRI does, it takes a video of your brain. Yeah, right? continual, yeah. So um, he can see what centers of the brain are lighting up when people hear a story. And he compares them to the centers of the brain that light up when people have an actual experience. The story is told about later. And it turns out it's shockingly similar uh, brain reaction to storytelling as it I is. I believe it. Because we uh, picture it. It's like I'm there. Yeah. Have the CTO right. walk in. I'm at, right. you know, I'm at my desk at the, at the petrol plant. Totally. Got it. And, you know, that's exactly it. You begin to empathize with that character. And, and they're selected for reasons. That's true, right? If, if back in our cave days, somebody had come running up the mountain and said, there's a saber-toothed tiger right behind me. And you had not had the fear, the experience they were having, and that wasn't covered by the story. Yeah. You might have thought, oh, neat. I haven't seen a saber-toothed tiger. Maybe I'll hang on and check that out. Yeah. Yeah. Evolution helped us out with that one. Those get people aren't around anymore. Like, that saber-toothed. I don't know what that is, but I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. As the tiger's picking his teeth with the bones that they got. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So so we picture ourselves there. The brain responds almost the same way as if we were there mm -hmm. with a good story. Yeah. And the, when that's done well, when empathy is set up well empathy. between the reader and the protagonist of the story, um, what ends up happening is 
that you know as you are cheering for that uh, protagonist, you are in fact cheering for yourself. Yeah. You start to say, I want that person to get what they want because that is a person like me. And therefore, you're going through the ups and downs of their adventure as if you're having that adventure yourself. And that is what creates the emotional dynamism of the story. So if they are going through a moment where they uh, are on track to get that object of desire, then you're going to feel pretty good. Your emotions are going to be climbing. You're going to be feeling some elation. And then all of a sudden, something goes wrong. You get to turn to the negative. And you're going to be like, oh, God, no, no, no. Yeah. It's, uh, that is why stories create emotionally resonant experiences. Now, you flip to the, uh, uh, the other side and, uh, of brain science. And what we recognize is what the brain stores are moments of change. Hmm. Because our brain can't store every experience we're having. We can't have a long-running videotape. We don't have the we don't have the memory. <laughs> so it's going to store moments of change, and whether or not those had pleasurable or painful outcomes. Right. And so we forget, like we, we forget so much stuff in our day that, um, uh, you know, if I were to ask you, did you drive to work today? Yeah. Were you stuck in traffic? Uh, no, not too bad. I'm in New okay. Hampshire. <laughs> you yeah, 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 you're doing 95 <laughs> miles an hour. All right. Yeah. So, you know, the funny question, I'll ask somebody at a seminar at nine in the morning, what sure. they make and model of the car they just followed for 45 minutes. Oh, yeah. yeah. And nobody can remember. Nobody not even close. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, but if you'd hit that car, you'd remember it three weeks from now. Totally. Because there had been a moment of change that you, you know, recorded in the negative. So the the brain focuses on elements of change and then it stores as memories. And this is tools for survival. Those uh, value charged elements. This was good or this was bad um, as uh, part of that memory. Now that tells us a couple of things, Casey. Mm. The first thing is all of our memories are emotionally charged. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. And makes sense. so we like to think, especially in a business sense, especially when I'm out figuring out what next piece of software to buy or whether or not to sign that purchase order, yeah. that we make all of our decisions rationally. <laughs> but we don't. Yeah, my wife would tell, tell you otherwise. Yeah, we don't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and your wife and, and a researcher named Antonio Damasio uh, out at Caltech. So you should put them together. They get along. Both of them. <laughs> oh, see, there you go. Yeah. Uh, then they get along well over some good food and you know some light Italian wines. Cappuccino, yes. See, so uh, what what he would say is that when we go to make a decision, we then pull our our brain is incredible at pattern matching. Mm -hmm. So we pull all of the related decisions we've made, and we have to do this in an instant, right? Because if you right. see saber tooth tiger number two, you don't want to have time to think. Well. That's a pretty cat. I wonder what I ought to do. You know, you need, you need to know to get to cover or yeah. flee as quickly as you can. So you form an instant gut based on the whole history of your experiences, and that is your gut reaction. That is what we experience as our gut reaction. Eh, I don't know about this. Eh, this is definitely the way to go. I trust these people. I'm going to go this way. I've had good experiences here. Right. And the, that decision-making is largely driven off of this emotional reference act. Well, to bring it full circle, if a story can make your brain react 
like life makes your brain react. Now, this is the thing that Hassan is studying at Princeton, has not yet proven, would tell you he's not yet proven. It needs a lot more research. But if stories effectively can write to the reference base of your brain, mm. then storytelling is unique among all forms of marketing in its ability to affect how humans think and behave. And therefore, a tool that we should, that we should wield responsibly. 100%. Use for good, not evil. <laughs> you bet. But to your point, that's, one, that's probably, I'm say, one of the, if not the most powerful tools I could think of in marketing is to affect people at that level, that emotional level. Well, it really is. And, and listen, we know when you walk out of a film that really connects with you. Sure. And you've had that experience where, you know, you're exhausted, you're spent oh, after yeah. a great film. Yeah. Uh, but you can find moments in your life when you're thinking about the world differently because of that movie. You will yeah. live your life differently. You will make different choices uh, than you would uh, leaving that film. Do you have, I don't one? Remember Do you have what, one recently? You know, I, I had a, um, well, this is personal, but we'll go in. Yeah. Um, Hardcore. Can't remember the name of the film, but it was a film where a guy lost his father mm. and had not had that end of life conversation with him. Right. Um, hadn't had a chance. And so I went to Pittsburgh and I sat down with my dad and I used that as the context for talking about it. Sure. And I, I, I was, you know, I'm you're scared to death. My dad's 82. You're scared to death to have these conversations with your yeah. parents because you don't want to scare them. Uh, it's uncomfortable talking about it. Um, you're not sure what it's going to, how it's going to go. And he, I started to bring this up and he stopped me and he said, ah, he said, I know where you're going and let me help you out. He said, one of the greatest gifts, my father, my grandfather, uh, one of the greatest gifts my, my father ever gave me was before he died and he died young. He sat me down and he told me I'd been an extraordinary son, that he wouldn't have changed a thing in our relationship, and that his life was much happier for me having been in it. Wow. And then he had that same conversation with me. Now, I can tell you that's, without a doubt, the most meaningful conversation I've had in my life. And I will remember it. It will give me comfort when I have to say goodbye to him, uh, a lot of comfort. And it's a story I've repeated to a few folks now to you and your audience, because I think it's such a beautiful thing you can do in life, which is while somebody is alive and healthy, uh, share that importance of the relationship with them. Um, but that is an experience. That is a decision. It is something I'm passing along. It was inspired by a fictional story. Right. And it's changing how the most important interpersonal relationships of my life work. Right. Um, it, and that's power. That's power, that's right? So powerful that, you know, and little did those movie makers know. You need to find out what movie that is, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> little, little did they know that that movie had such an impact. And, I, and as, you, you know, as you brought that up, I was thinking there's different movies throughout my life at different times that had an impact. Like Air Force One. As cheesy yeah. as it is with Harrison Ford, sure. you know, around that time, you know, eventually went in the military, you know, and, yeah. and, and all these different decisions. And actually, just recently, I don't even see it behind me. The Greatest Showman, awesome movie, Rotten Tomatoes, 
critics. You guys suck. But um, but great movie. And to me, though, it had a profound impact. I don't, have you seen it? P.T. Barnum? All that kind of? No. I, I want to. Yeah, I remember it came it's out. really cool. And I didn't want to see it. But my wife was like, go oh, come see this. I'm like, actually, yeah, yeah, let's try it out. I realized at the show that my ideal career would to be a ringmaster for a circus. It was like the perfect combination of cheap, wow. over the top, and fun. I was like, I need to be a ringmaster. <laughs> you know? That's um, great. And but yeah, you know, to your point, different movies and and some have those deep, profound effects. Some have just inspiring. So even now, before every sh- every show, <laughs> before every podcast, I'll just listen to that music to remind me to get back into that mode. And put my top hat back on, you know. But it's it's those kind of things that either inspire us or or motivate oh, yeah. us to take an action, like like you did. It's amazing. Or to think differently about our culture. I mean, uh, yeah. I don't know if you remember uh, Philadelphia Story, yeah. But before that film, you know, people with HIV/AIDS were pariahs. Oh yeah. I mean, in America, that was uh, not talked about. Nope. People would just retire from work. Controversy, yeah. People died of complications related to pneumonia. Yeah. They wouldn't even put it into their obits. And all of a sudden, through a love story, yeah, they change how we experience a disease. And the, the culture, cultural change was unbelievable. It was overnight. It was overnight what happened due to that film. So look, great stories change the world because they change how people think and how they act. And that's the good news. I want to get back to your question. I'm quoting you on that one. That was really good. <laughs> but the challenge is how to tell a great story and how to tell a story that has the effect you want. Because Bob is a master. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll see if I can find it quickly. But Bob, So what you need to know about Bob and the, the research that goes behind this book is, you know, Bob's 78 years old. And he started off on the stage uh, in Broadway. Uh, and then went through uh, a few years at the Old Vic as an artist in residence. I mean, he gets this stuff. And then he was drafted by UA to fly all the way out to LA, where he spent most of his career, uh, helping them identify viable scripts. And the way Bob would tell it is that he would get a script that read, you know, he'd open it up and say, wow, the language is beautiful. And uh, the characters are rich and deep and well-described and differentiated. And uh, it's got a good opening scene. And then the story sucks. <laughs> and he said, this would happen and happen and happen. But he said, but if you got to a book where the language was just okay, the characters weren't really fleshed out at the beginning. Right, but the story hooked and held your attention, and at the end, you thought, "God, oh, that was so worth it!" And it rewarded it. The rest can be fixed. And so that script was highly valuable. So Bob went out and said, "Look, is there a way to figure out the essential form of story, right? And to teach that form, like we teach painters to paint with perspective, uh, mm-hmm. or to to use light uh, differently in their painting?" And Bob created that essential story form. Jeez. And we publish it in our, our book. And he teaches each of the different elements. It's a eight different elements of story uh, building. And this, this um, book is Storynomics, right? Storynomics, yes. Awesome. Yeah, Robert McKee. Awesome. We'll put a link to the show notes for everyone, too. Thank you. But the, the reason that's important is that 
great stories do have a form and understanding that form helps you uh, tell stories. So when we said that the CMO has to go from, from an incrementalist or improving on a theme to being a change agent, what she really needs to do is to go through and develop a marketing approach with story at the center instead of ads at the center. Story at the center. Story at the center, man. And then instead of thinking about it vehicle by vehicle by vehicle, what are we doing through our marketing automation channel? What are we doing through our telemarketing and what are our scripts? What are we doing through this? What are we doing through this? She needs to come in and say, all right, here are our brand stories that are meant to establish our brand as beloved in the minds of the market. Uh, Bob loves to quote the Havas study that the numbers vary year to year, but effectively says that if 95% of brands went away tomorrow, 95% of people wouldn't care. <laughs> and oh, that's so true. it's even more true in B2B because we oh. don't build love uh, for our brands. I mean, yeah. the brands that we love, you think about it, like I would care if Apple went away. I mean, that brand has an emotional connection with me. Um, I would care if Google went away because they make my life a lot easier. Um, you know, we can go through and name these brands, but yeah. again, there are a fraction of the thousands of brands we get hit with every day. So how do you become a brand that matters to your customers? And then how do you apply story form, same form, but apply it differently to drive demand gen or lead gen? And how do you do it to close a sale? And that story application is going to be really important because uh, as you're uh, putting these things out into the field, you're going to actually want to train your teams uh, to do it well. So the CMO's new role is, is not is not overseeing major campaigns and events for the company. The CMO's role is showrunner. Mm. She has to get in there and recruit the orchestra of creatives and storytellers, come up with the macro strategy that aligns with her brand and what the brand wants to be in the field and who the audience of that brand is, uh, tell brand stories that connect. Yeah. So people think that Red Bull, well, Red Bull lucked out and picked out the extreme sports stuff that guys just seem to flock to. Red Bull didn't look out. <laughs> they, they started off by asking this one basic question. What do our 15 to 25 year old guys love? Yeah. And then since we can't do what they love between the hours of 11 and three in the morning, what do they love during the day that we can provide <laughs> to them as a safe brand? Right. And then they've got an answer about the stuff their customers want. And then they became really good storytellers really good consistent producers until they are now the uh the leading producer of this stuff in the world leading extreme sports publisher in the world surpassing espn 100 syndicating yeah. syndicating content back to espn who airs it for free with the red bull logo on the signs Everywhere. and on the booths and on the mics you know behind. Yeah. <laughs> that's beautiful so it's incredible it's incredible it's brilliantly done but red bull didn't go out and just say what stories should we tell right let's get out there and do it they understood their customers they understood what they wanted. They understood the, the story form and, and the core value that is, that is at play in those stories. So how they understood how to apply those stories. And now they've done it thousands of times successfully and built a global multi-billion dollar brand by doing it. Wow. Jeez. So, you know, it's on, you have a seminar too. You have a we do. Teach this is a couple, multiple days or how does that all? It's it's a full day. It's uh nine to usually ends up around five thirty with Q and A. Um, one day, I, I could see well, you know, heading off to a sweat lodge for a week and learning about storytelling. It's really, yeah, it seems actually, like it, it's the I don't want to say secrets out there, but it 
yeah, it's, it's a no brainer, but it sounds like there's more to it. You know, I'm sure Bob has you know, plenty of things in his head. He'd love to share with someone over more than one day. Uh, <laughs> well, we, we do do custom days for businesses. Sure. Um, so the, the challenge with the challenge we've got is the companies will only pay, you know, for the seminar and a night at a hotel. They don't want to run up a $4,000 training bill for an employee. So, you know, that's, <laughs> that's always the edge. Not most companies. Yeah. It's the, that, that's the, that's the edge, right? Especially, especially if you go to your boss, who's a hard nosed, you know, finance guy and say, I want to take a course on storytelling. They think cookies and milk and don't get that this is transformative <laughs> for your business. Right? right. So, you know, we've got to get the, the, the word out into the street, but right now we teach a full day on storynomics and that is, cool. you know, identifying the problem and why you have to change so that you're armed to go back in and explain this to your company explaining the options that are not story uh, and why they won't work anymore. Explaining story and how it fits with the mind. And then looking at the specific applications and different application of story for branding versus demand gen, lead gen. Right. And we, and we give examples of both B2C and B2B and uh, then closing the sale. So we actually teach uh, B2B sales folks to write the email that will hook the attention and instead of being deleted or deleted and marked as spam, uh, you know, deleted with prejudice, if you will, yeah. uh, uh, tell them how to write an email that will get the attention of their prospect. And it takes longer, but it's way more effective. You way know, more effective. In, by the way, deleted with prejudice is marking it as spam 100%. <laughs> I do it all the yeah. time. Uh, Boom. But yeah. when you mentioned that, I wrote that down earlier because lead gen makes sense, brand awareness, but then you also mentioned the last part of it, especially in the B2B sense closing the deal marketing may tell that story but if they get on the phone with someone that sales rep needs to tell if not the same story on their own story yeah and and i even thinking back to my own you know I, I was marketer went sales and i and i had a story where i just loved this marketing automation thing and it worked for me and i just loved telling it to people and i may not have known any of the sales techniques or challenger sale yet or any of those things but i just told people my story and they're like that's cool yeah help us do that too. Like, oh, yeah. okay. So a whole company sprout up from those kind of storytelling yeah. ideas and being a, a reference for folks. Well, that's right. And what, what you were probably doing and, and look, we're innately storytelling machines. We get it beaten out of us in school. That's true. They're saying, don't tell me a story. Don't tell me a story. Write this essay in the structured format. In third person. And, unemotional. Yeah, and I want you to, yes. And I want you to yeah. present, I want you to present just the facts. Okay. But the facts don't speak for themselves, right? right. It's um, the facts give you the how. Story, sorry, the facts give you the what happened. The facts right. describe what happened. Story tells you how and why what happened happened. Right. And in the end, that's more important to all of us because as a living organism, we want to either achieve that thing. You know, if I, facts tell you there's pizza in the room. Mm -hmm. Right. The story the person tells you is going to be you can or cannot get that pizza. And if you can, here's how uh, that's the fact. That's really what you want to know. How do I get the pizza? Yeah. So um, the. The the fact that what we end up doing with the the sales stories is really important. And, and so marketing branding stories can can be outside. the We'll never mention often the product. They'll be outside the brand's area. So yeah. Red Bull is, a, you know, to carry the Red Bull example forward, there's not a can on their website. They don't talk about energy beverages at all. What they do <laughs> is connect with that, that energy yeah. 
uh, that is created when uh, you go from panic to elated is the value pair they're playing with. When somebody is at risk, the moment where they go victorious. Because if you're identifying with this snowboarder that's coming up on a crazy jump, never been done in the world, they could lose a leg if they don't do it, you feel that holy crap moment and building up and bam, they hit the jump and you're like, oh, I can't believe this is happening. And they nail that jump and bam, there is that incredible energy. And as soon as they pull them up and that you're starting to see them celebrate, boom, the Red Bull logo's on the screen. Your brain writes that memory, <laughs> Red Bull logo, yeah. and the emotional charge of hell yeah. We just won. So when you go to reach the cooler and there's Red Bull amp and monster, of course you reach for the Red Bull. Yeah. It gives me that lovely, buzzy feeling I love. And it's tied to every story they've told me. So marketing brand stories can sit up here and never talk. They don't talk about drinks, refreshments, yeah. nothing. They talk about the thing that aligns with the central value of the brand, core value of the brand. Um, demand gen stories do get a little bit more on the nose. Those stories are typically going to be told about a prospective customer. On the nose? So uh, a, little, a little close to the, your, your, your typical customer in your industry. So usually they're going to be set in your industry space or in your customer's sure. home or office or something like that. And life is going to go out of the balance, out of balance for that customer uh, with some kind of incident. We call it an inciting incident in the book because it really incites action in the story. Um, and that is going to force the customer to say, form in their mind, some idea. We call it the object of desire. That if they achieve it, they will be able to get balance back in their life. Huh. Because in the end, we really want to, to leave lives that where we are pretty much in control. Right. People think, no, 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 I want joy all the time. And I say, I will put you on a yacht off of St. Bart's drinking and dancing with models. And I promise you in two weeks, you will be begging me to send you back to your living room in a cool dark room where you can watch Netflix and put down the champagne. Guaranteed. Interesting. I know a lot of people would like to try it. That'd be a cool TV yeah. show, wouldn't it? Yeah. Exhausted by the party. Yeah. That's a good name. Exhausted by the party. Yeah. <laughs> it's like naked and afraid, you know, we'll put you on, you know, you'll be in a deserted tropical Island with a, uh, person of the opposite sex and they'll be naked yeah. and a lot of champagne yeah. up, like mosquitoes <laughs> right get me out of here and yeah. what you just did there to make it interesting you took it to the negative i did yeah mosquitoes See? mosquitoes sure. that was that's what you go. Fun. <laughs> that's what makes it interesting yeah they're, they're, unless they're running across you know fleeing from something it's not a fun story oh, does so, it tie into like even you know how the news all they do is the negative mm. And it makes me actually want the positive from the news because they're always, yeah. but yeah, they do. They do. They do. Yeah. That was it. They, they do always do negative because they get views from it, you know? Yeah. And, and we respond more to threats of pain than we do uh, promises of pleasure. Uh, that I, I don't remember exactly which book, but it covered in depth that we uh, suffer twice as much. Uh, for every dollar we lose in the stock market, then we get pleasure from every dollar we make in the stock market. Sure. Totally irrational. But, you know, losing something feels way worse than gaining something to us. 100%. I, I bought Tesla on principal, and principal cost me $500, but I'm still there. I'm with, keep I'm with keeping, you. man. I'm, Take us to I'm Mars. With you. <laughs> Quickly. 
please. Um, yeah. So, so the stories as you're getting down to the sales side, you know, your sales folks are going to tell a story that is really in the customer's world. Yeah. If it's a well-told story, I mean, think of this, instead of sending those emails out that read, uh, dear Casey, could I get five minutes of your time? <laughs> My product does X, Y, Z in Sounds the industry. Good. And I think you'll really, <laughs> I think you'll really like to hear about it. How about I schedule a call with you? You know, I'll ask when we're presenting our seminar, who is going to respond to that email? And no hands will go up. And then I will ask, who here believes that your sales force is sending those emails? Exactly like the one you just said you were going to put up. And every hand goes up. Okay. As marketers, it's our job to change that. We've got to tell them that's a problem, explain why it's a problem, and teach them a new way, and then show them the yield they get that's increased. So it is harder work. But we go out and we say, look, um, Let's write a better sales email. So let's actually do the hard work like you would with story of getting to know our in customer in their industry. Right. Let's know what's going on in their customer's mind. Let's understand what threw their life out of balance because they're a lot more likely to, to respond to doing something different if their life is in fact out of balance, positive or negative. And then let's craft a story that goes and acknowledges that and shows them our way out of the hole. So it goes something like this. Um, uh, dear Mark, um, I saw you on television last week and I think you did a good job in front of the Senate, um, despite what I'm sure were very stressful and difficult circumstances. Um, however, as you know, Congress is not going to let this go with a simple uh, slap on the wrist and just embarrassing you in front of a panel of people that don't understand technology <laughs> or Facebook or the data you're collecting at all. Right. Um, legislation is coming. And we know you have lobbyists. They're going to be out there to shape that legislation, but that won't be enough. We're going to, you know, we're in a moment of overcorrection. And as you might expect, this could have a massive impact on your ability to collect data, to use data, to share data with your partners. Uh, that could affect this Facebook uh, business model and ecosystem for many years to come. We have a technology that enables you to gather the same information, run it through machine learning, Lock in the same recommendations for your users, but never go backwards to figure out what data was held about that user. We can keep the data and the recommendations totally isolated. Wow. And uh, protect your user's privacy 100% while still having the same business impacts you see. Can I get five minutes of your time? Do you think about that email? So you went in and you specifically talked to your prospect instead of just Hey, can I, before you ask them for their time, right? I've pictured that like everybody who's on the street saying, can I get it? You know, can I get a dollar? Yeah. Can I get a dollar? We're, it's that like an exactly auto. It's thing. auto. Yeah. It's like, ah, uh, yeah. My time is the only precious thing I've got. Like if I had, if I had unlimited time, I could do everything. <laughs> I could be a, literally, I could learn to surf, learn to, you know, farm. Learn, I mean, yes. You have a dollar. <laughs> I, yes. My empire is behind me. Let me get you a dollar. But we have, you know, the only truly commodity, truly limited commodity we have in life is time. 100%. And so when somebody asks you for it, they're asking you for something incredibly valuable. True. And so the reason you say no is because they have given you no idea of value exchange. But if your sales force goes in and says, hey, 
I understand your life was just thrown out of balance. Um, okay, they've got your attention. And this is different. Normally, salespeople write with all rosy things. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, all right. Now you've got me on the hook. You're, my life is thrown out of balance, yes. Or, but, or you could say your competitor's life was. You know, your competitor just was fined a billion dollars for, if you're in the banking industry, you could write the Wells Fargo story. You know, Wells Fargo was just fined a billion dollars for fraudulently creating accounts for customers. And I'm sure that that felt like a point issue at a single company. But were you aware that you have hired 300 Wells Fargo employees since that problem began? And this may be part of your culture, right? Now you've got the attention of this person. So you go in and you figure out the honest to goodness facts behind their business. What's gone off the rails? And then you begin to coach them through what they have tried to recover to do, why that will fail, what they might uh, do next time, and how you can help them succeed. Then they are highly likely to take that conversation with you, at least as an information gathering call. And then it's just your job to close that sale. So those sales stories, when they get, again, think of it at the beginning, Casey, we talked about curated content. Well, the generic sales email is like curated content. Somebody in marketing wrote it and I'm sending out to 150,000 people. Totally. And, and they're all, you know, 149,500 of them are flipping me off in their heads. But, you know, it's almost like we're treating it like one of those African, like, diamond scams where, you know, they send millions of spam emails out saying, just give me, you know, $1,000 and I'll be able to give you millions of dollars in African diamonds. And, and right. you know, some of the emails are poorly written. And, and yeah. some people have suggested that it's on purpose because anyone that still responds to like the worstly written email ever probably missed the IQ gap or is somehow not understanding enough and they might qualify to continue the conversation. It's like if, if we're, if we're treating our prospects the same way by sending them that, you know, and we kind of are, if we're not really making a story in that email, we're just right. blasting it out there hoping that somebody will respond and will play the numbers game. And right. with all those other prospects who are real people. Right. And you know, on the B2C side, when advertising began to drop in efficacy over the last 10 years, you know what they did? They sped up the shows and they stuffed in more ads. Oh. So you had a higher, per- yeah, they did. They literally would shorten by, by accelerating the showtime and cram more minutes of ads in because they needed to maintain their revenue. Well, this is what B2B guys are doing right now. I need to get enough meetings. So I, you know, I used to send a thousand emails to get 10 meetings. Now I got to send 10,000 emails to get 10 meetings. Well, now I need a longer lead list. And so the audience is getting increasingly bombarded, which is causing people to be like, no, 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 no. I'm going to make, I'm going to really invest in my spam filtering. I'm going to take time to unsubscribe and mark things as spam. And we're now getting better and better weapons to defend against that. Great. So basically they have abused their way out of that business model. Yeah. I'm thinking how dirty that is. I, I didn't even think about that. Uh, let's just show more ads. Not, mm-hmm. not try to fix the problem. Let's just, oh, the, the price per ad is lower. Cool. Well, I had another ad block into this 30 minute session. Yes. Man. And then to your point, we're doing that ourselves on the, on the marketing side. Well, right. let's buy a 10,000, 100,000 person list and just, hit more people or to your your initial point, let's just, you know, have more BDR folks cold call that same. And I I once went to a a company uh, down South and (laughs) they were, they had a floor full of college grads who were dialing for dollars, just slamming the phones, calling a set known uh, institutions in North America. And it, it never changed. They just kept blasting them. And the challenge was it, it quote worked, but it worked by like 1%. Um, 
year over year, which is not really working, right. um, people. <laughs> but right. their plan was to build a whole nother building. Um, and they actually were next door. They're building a whole nother three-story building. And the idea was to fill that with that many more of the college students doing that. And thankfully, one of the things we were able to do is, is show them that this is a, you, you know, to your point, business as usual, it's not, it's not how we do it. And they were actually able to use half the original floor of, of callers and some nurturing and some marketing automation, things like that to actually make things more efficient. So when people were calling, people actually want to talk to you and they're warmed up. But, but, but in, now the challenge is what do they do with a building now? But Sorry. it's a good problem to have. Yeah, no, it's good you changed that mode. I mean, and that's what we see. You know, it is, it is uh, this, this tendency like, okay, our customers are blocking us over here, so let's cram in a longer pre-roll ad over here and right. let's do a screen takeover or bring up a pop-up box that says you have installed ad blockers, so we're going to force you to take the ads in order to get our revenue. Okay, I understand media companies need revenue, but, but let's listen to the problem. Your customers are feeling your ads are intrusive. They no longer want them interrupting the experience. So you saying we're going to force you to do that as your navigation might be the wrong answer. How about a micropayment that says, get this ad ad free for three cents and figure out how to get the micropayment working? I mean, there have to be other ways. Or, you know, you've read 10 articles, you've actually paid for your subscriptions. So we're going to give you the subscription of the whole magazine this month. Next month, you can decide whether or not to go back to article, article versus reading the thing, but you're obviously reading this stuff. Right. I mean, there are different ways to do it that are, that are looking at the customer's goals and not trying to just force an old school business model down their throat. You know, but I even think about some of the trappings, the, the, the latest marketing strategies. And obviously, we can get distracted by shiny things. And mm. you know, we're trying to, at least on our side, make sure that on the marketing automation side, you actually fulfill the dream of the, the original tool. But there's, there's you know, things like ABM. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's everywhere. Sure. But we've been doing that for a while, but it's now back on the top of our minds. But I was just thinking as you were saying that, it doesn't matter what strategy you're using. If you're, if you're doing brute force trauma, even if you're doing brute force trauma to one person because it's a, an yes. EDM strategy, if you're just doing that horrible sales email we just talked about, it doesn't really matter. You still need – you have to have the story. To yes. Thing. Yeah. yeah. You have to. Cool. And, and you've got to do the research about the individual customer if you want the result you want. That and you'll get – yeah, you'll get a multiple of the deal. So, so uh, that was my other question. So how do we get the stories? Mm. Is it, is so, it the, the interview? It must be the interviews, but yeah. that just seems like, well, that seems like the, the challenge. Where do you get those so stories think, from? Yeah, it's a great question. So the first, the, when the marketer is moving into this new mode, the first thing she needs to do is to create their content strategy. Okay. And that's going to look at all the different channels and all the different divisions and all the different languages where this brand happens to touch its customer. And then she's going to say, look, I want to allocate my budget so that, uh, you know, she'll slice and dice it on different axes, right? From a macro perspective, 30% uh, is, because um, we're a pretty well-known brand, focused on branding, 50% uh, on demand gen, lead gen, 20% on closing the deal. Right. Fine. And then I'm going to slice it and dice where I'm going to go LinkedIn for a third of my budget, uh, marketing automation and custom experience creation for a third of my budget, and whatever else she's spreading events. Fine. Sure. Okay. Um, she documents that. Uh, 
and documents it for the whole company to see. This because she's teaching something new. So as the showrunner, she's got to say, here's our new strategy. And she's no doubt worked with her team to create this. Here's what we designed. This is how we deploy our budget over the course of this year. And these are the stories we need to tell at this schedule. And the purpose of this is a high-level story that's going to make people feel something about our brand. This is what we want them to feel. So this is a branding story. And we're telling it on LinkedIn. Or this is going into a native campaign we're running on Time Inc. You know, we're going to put that on our calendar and it's going to be same thing. Or this is a lead gen story that's going to, you know, really cause people to download the ebook, sign up for the white paper, come to our webinar, you know, right. et cetera. So by, by having those allocations at the beginning and then by documenting specifically and saying, this is how we're allocating the budget, as she's doing that, as she adds each asset to a plan, she can start to see how she's allocating the segments of the budget she wanted to segment. And is the plan she's putting together actually lining up with her macro goal set sure. at the beginning of the year? You can do this on, on a CMP. We hope ours at Skyward, but uh, there are others in the market too that your, your uh, viewers should check out. Once you've got that, that's a good, great plan. Okay, great. Now we know what we want to do end then. Then how do you execute on it? Right. Because let's face it, marketers are not, by nature, storytellers. And we get, you know, we get people coming in from the best brands in the world taking our storynomics course because they're learning a new skill. Uh, be, because, you know, they have learned product marketing or they have learned uh, traditional marketing messaging. But that's all happy, 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 joy, joy, joy. Yeah. Uh, that is, they don't know how to tell us yes. And it's very forgettable because yeah. there's, there's not a moment of change that causes you to focus on that experience. So the next thing you do is have to, is have to recruit storytellers. And so you're going to want to go out and find inside your organization, probably, uh, but, but a lot of outside domain experts, especially if you're writing on an area outside of what your business does, right? Mm -hmm. So um, IBM security has a lot of security experts they use to write some of their content, uh, but they also use a few hundred global security experts that are out in the field for universities and for other companies that are that are detecting stuff uh, early because they want to be the journal of record for this stuff. Right. Data theft, you know, hacks, malware. They want to report on it first. Um, Colgate is a toothpaste maker. They know a lot about producing CPG toothpaste. <laughs> but but are they the right folks to write about wisdom tooth recovery? No. Mm. They don't have expertise like uh, an orthodontist or a dentist would on on dental uh, health topics. So we went out and recruited for Colgate socially influential dental experts who could write well. Um, and we do this, you know, brand after brand after brand. The brand, the, the, the marketer has to go out and get her storytelling team that is going to be able to execute on whatever strategies she's got. So go out and figure out the topics you're going to be writing on and then go and recruit folks that are experts in those domains. That makes sense. And by, by recruiting experts, you, you actually do something really nice, which is when they publish under your brand, it builds credibility for your brand on that topic, right? So how, does, how did Red Bull, an energy drink maker, gain credibility as the largest extreme sports publisher? They partnered with some of the folks who were top in the field to tell those stories, Yeah. right? They brought in the best of the best, and therefore the best of the best now is promoting Red Bull. So you anchor high with the quality of the content you're going to be creating. Sure. And you've got enough of these folks that you can deliver those stories. You explain your strategy to them. And in some cases, you go out and you train them on story because a lot of the, the domain experts may not understand how to craft something that is really going to connect with an audience. Not, now, not every piece of content the brand puts out will be a story. 
or in story sure. form, sure. but it is much more effective when it is. And then finally, you, you need to operationalize the content creation processes. So right. you, uh, you need to make sure that assignments are flowing, that your review queue is defined, because if you're in a health or finance, FinServe, have any heavily regulated industry, you're gonna have an eight, nine, 10 step approval process. Totally. So you don't wanna do that with Word docs and emails. I mean, <laughs> your, your, your goal has to be to publish multiple times a week, if not every day, if not multiple times a day, as some of our most successful clients do. So, you know, if you're creating two videos a week and 10 articles a week, you've got to have a workflow. You're not emailing those things around and having version control issues and somebody getting stuck and, and not getting their job done and creating a bottleneck for everybody. Right. So managing that on a CMP uh, is critical and uh, makes it scalable. And so um, I can tell you, you know, we produce more than a million original assets and those aren't tweets. Those are articles, uh, slideshows, videos, infographics, eBooks. And this is Skyward. Um, Right. Yeah, Skyward has done that on our platform, and um, and it we are you know it's almost infinitely scalable as long as you've got the talent to create the stuff. Right. Um, but as it's being created, the other tweaks you want to make sure you do you want to search optimize that content because you want it to be found by as broad a possible audience. Uh, search drives a ton of traffic uh, for our clients, uh, billions of earned impressions a year, um, and you uh, want to make sure that you're creators that are the socially influential experts are sharing it down their channels. So you want to make sure you're paying them when their article is published and say, hey, here's your article. Uh, would you please share it down all your social channels? We really appreciate that. Yeah. So that's what the marketer needs to do it is really creating new strategy, a new get recruiting the new team and developing the skill sets for content creation. It is establishing operational processes that are scalable and replicable and uh, manageable so you can optimize them over time. Um, and then it's putting in place, I guess, last systems to measure how it's all working. Because you want to you want to tie this out uh, to the success it's generated. Interesting. So it, in Skyward, just sort of summarize for fo folks, helps organize that process, but also find the people to execute on that for you. Is that how, how yeah, does that so, work? Yeah. So some of our clients use this just as a software uh, enabler if they're doing all their storytelling in-house. Yep. Um, we plug into, for example, Marketo or Eloqua, so we can track uh, story consumption all the way through to lead generation. So we can tell when the story was the first touch point or a nurturing touch point. And not only that, I'll flip it on the head in a minute, but, um, uh, but we also, uh, in addition to providing that software, which connects to the marketing automation systems, um, and lets you publish through your social channels uh, or wherever you're going to connect with your customers. Um, we will also do a full service job. So if the marketer doesn't want to have to oversee content creation, she can just set the macro strategy and we will recruit and train those creatives, manage the creation of their, uh, an improvement of their content and get it to what we think is brand ready so that she can, uh, focus on conducting the rest of the orchestra while we're doing that piece. We're happy to work software only or software plus services. Interesting. That's really cool. It's a good gig. I'm very happy right now. Where did you come from? Skyward <laughs> Storynomics. This, this, I mean, obviously you have a passion for the storytelling. Where, where did all this come from? Take us back. Uh, you know, it's funny. Um, we spun this out of my prior company, uh, Gather.com, which if you're racing over to look at Gather.com, you won't find it there anymore, sadly. Um, so 
I look at, at, at all my career, I've liked disruptive uh, marketing models. My first yeah. company uh, that I launched when I was 26 was uh, the first affiliate marketing platform called Sky, uh, called Be Free. And Be Free grew up to, through a public offering, acquired Commission Junction. They kept that name, which really upset me. Uh, huh? okay. Yeah, yeah. And then we sold uh, to ValueClick. Uh, actually, the CJ acquisition happened just after the sale. We've been courting them for about a year. Huh. And they kept the CJ brand inside ValueClick, which broke my heart. But um, yeah, so that they combined the CJ and BeFree platforms and it became the monster that it is today. Okay. So that was, you know, that was my first run. And I like these economic models that are disruptive. I like these moments of mass change because I think that's when real economic opportunity exists, both for us and for our customers. Um, and so here, uh, we saw the coming collapse of the ad world that, uh, as consumers were empowered to get content over the top or on demand, um, and they were doing it and you just watched the consumption habits and, you know, it's funny, go and ask a three-year-old kid to watch a show with ads in it, watch their reaction to the ads. <laughs> uh, they they think you've taken their story away. They start to cry. You know, we had to grow up. That was the grand bargain we had growing up. You know, you had to watch the ads. That's how you get yeah. your TV. Yeah. Um, there wasn't a plan B. But these kids, you know, feel like you're doing something harmful to them when they have to go. I think you changed the channel and they can't see their show anymore. They're very upset. Um, so the world's changed. I think this is an economically disruptive moment. And I think the brands do have to adapt. So what we started to do is say, what's going to be the next thing? So what will work? And I happened to be running a social platform called Gather uh, that I really wanted to become the, the MySpace for the NPR set where we'd have great conversations interesting. on interesting topics. Yeah. yeah. We, we got run over by the financial collapse and by Facebook sort of simultaneously. It was uh, pretty ugly. <laughs> but uh, we got up to about 7 or 8 million users who were lunatic, passionate people. Oh, that's, a, that's what you need. Uh, and we need 20 because that's 20. when the big ad buyers come God. in. Yeah, the big ad buyers come in at 20. So I don't know if that's still the rule. That was the rule then. Um, so uh, we watched as people were having incredibly deep conversations. And we started to work with some of our fledgling brand advertisers and folks that were experimenting early days. And uh, we would quote, go and see if we could trigger these conversations. You know, put up photos of your prettiest Italian table for Gorilla Pasta. And then these members of our group would go out, design an Italian table, photograph it, talk about the elements, how they crafted it. And all of a sudden, you've got this long food and crafts discussion happening all under the Gorilla <laughs> brand. And it was working really well. Um, you know, not quite at the scale where we needed it to, but then out of the blue, we. Uh, we got a note from an agency that we had worked with and they said, uh, look, um, we've got a brand and they want to create these kinds of experiences, but they wanted to do it on their site, not on your gather.com property. We said, look, we're going through an economic collapse. We've got all developers focused on the project we didn't focus on. We're barely getting through today. You know, can't really do anything else, but thank you. Calls back. He said, "I said, think you really, really out of here. This time, like, dude, I, I don't want to waste your time or mine. Like, we aren't going to be able to do that." It's like the opportunity's knocking, and you're like, "Ah!" Yeah. He calls back and he said, "It's PNG. It's the Pampers brand, and they're the largest advertising spender in the world. 
And so I flew down to Cincinnati. <laughs> and, um, and it turned out P&G had realized something before most of the world, this is 2009, that human discovery had changed. Mm. We now do most of our active discovery through search. If we have a question or a problem or something that we want to understand better, we search for it 150 billion times long. Totally. And if we have a little extra time, and we aren't sure what we're going to do, we hop on social. We do a lot of our passive discovery through social by following our friends who the stuff they thought was funny or interesting or angry and worth our attention. And these two new forms of discovery, search and social, were changing how people learn and act and interact with brands and think about their relationships with brands. And so they thought that the only way to win in these spaces, because 85% of the time we click away from a search page, it's on content. Yeah. 90% of the time we click away from a social page, it's on content, was if they began to create the content people want, as opposed mm-hmm. to just trying to advertise around other stuff that other people had created. And then I had, that was a light bulb moment for me. I understood where the industry was going. Uh, I understood we were probably going to get run over by Facebook. And so we pivoted out of that company into Skyward because we recognize that advertising is a $604 billion a year industry and it is in a state of collapse. And um, that $604 billion has to go somewhere. Somewhere. And we think it's going to be through sustained, extraordinary experience creation when it's done. Absolutely. The content people actually want to read. The stories people actually remember. Exactly. Exactly. So let's awesome. get out and tell those. That's it, man. Awesome. That's, man. The, that's the story in a nutshell. Jeez. Do you, do you even have time? I, I know you're traveling around. Was, were you traveling for the book or was it for, uh, for Skyward? Well, no, I've been, uh, well, I've been doing both. So, so Storynomics is really thought leadership for Skyward. Um, right. In our case, Bob, Bob, is, Bob is a writer and teacher. So the seminars in the book are his bread and butter. But for us, it's, um, for us, it is, is much more of a thought leadership effort. Uh, yeah, so we've been introducing it. Uh, we did three seminars in the U.S. so far. We'll do a fourth in Boston in June. And then before that, we're launching with our U.K., uh, Russian, and Chinese publishers. So um, we'll be giving our seminar uh, simultaneously translated in Moscow and in Beijing in May. You know, I guess it's a good reminder that stories cross languages. Absolutely. They cross, you know, they're woven, they're woven into our DNA. They are who we are. It's how they we think. So they translate Harry Potter into, you know, hundreds of different languages. Oh, yeah. It's the story. And it's, it, it is because story fits the mind in such a unique way. Uh, that form is how we record life. Mm-hmm. It is how we remember life. And it is how we navigate life. So that's why becoming a master storyteller can, can bring benefits inside and outside. Well, this is this is awesome. So we've got a couple things coming up. We've got the event in June, but but you also have uh, an event for Skyward, right? You have a conference coming up. We do. Yes, we have our Forward event, and uh, Forward and and Story Nomics. You can you can check out both at uh, Skyward.com/forward. Uh, that's S K Y W O R D dot com slash forward, and uh, Story Nomics. Uh, you can link to from that site or go to storynomics.com. And uh, if you buy both on the skyward.com slash forward site, you'll get a uh, discount for both days. They're back to back. And uh, nice. we'll give you a chance to do the industry thing and then do the story thing in, in two, two efficient days. Yeah, which one comes first? 
the, the industry comes first? Forward comes first, yep. And uh, that's because storynomics, people are exhausted by the end of it. Are they? Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. I almost want that one first, but you're right. If you're just mentally, the next day, you're just bad, man. blubbering about, <laughs> about yeah. story arc and... <laughs> yeah. People would just be laying in their rooms, you know, cool compress. It's amazing. You know, you Bob teaches for writers, uh, for sure. screenwriters, a three-day version of his seminar that doesn't look at the business aspects, but it, it, it is a three-day far deeper dive into story. And then he will teach a day on long-form television or a day on love stories as well, depending on the city he's in and whatever he happens to want to teach. So he is a 70, here you've got a 78-year-old guy who teaches storynomics with me on the stage nine to six by the time Q&A is done every day. Then gets up and does a solo performance from nine from nine a.m. to eight p.m. four days in a row. Anybody who's been on stage realizes being on stage, holding it together, yeah, uh, giving a good experience to an audience for that for that kind of a time is remarkable. Period. Doing it at his age is just you know miraculous. It's incredible. That's awesome. And he's a genius. He's an absolute genius. I, I I've been very honored to work with Robert McKee. He's he's a, a very dear friend now and. Uh, Every time I have dinner with him, every time I sit with Bob and his wife, Mia, um, I learn a little bit about the world and I, uh, I think I know how to live life a little bit better. So that's incredible. And it sounds like if, if you don't get enough from storynomics one day, there's, there's other options, you know, it's true. There's, it's true. You can take it deeper, take it three days, take it, take it. Oh yeah. And many people do. Many people go down. We'll take storynomics to figure out if it's, something they want to get. And then if they're going to do this for their career, they take story. Yeah. Totally worth it. That's amazing. It, and it, it yeah. seems like something that not even just the CMOs, but those up and coming, you're, you want to one day be that CMO, one day be that ringmaster or that showrunner. Yes. And if you're going to be, if you're going to be the change agent. Yeah. A lot of CMOs just want to coast on the advertising and, you know, kind of just get out on the old way and yeah. somewhere behind them at that director or VP level is somebody who's saying, Oh, that's not going to win here. So they can, they can make their career, they can make their company successful, and they can uh, establish their rep in the industry by jumping out and being the, the hardcore individual who just takes this and runs with it. Hardcore marketing right there. See the way, see the way I did that? <laughs> I love it, man. Not to have to have you on all the advertisements, but no, wait, there you are. I'm just going to do stories instead. Uh, this is <laughs> great. What are some of the, you know, can people connect with you on Twitter? Is that a good place to you know, follow, I'm sure you're, you're sure. creating more content and more experiences. They'd love to just, you know, learn from you. Absolutely. I'm Tom Gerace, so T-O-M-G-E-R-A-C-E on Twitter. Um, I'm on LinkedIn and I think it's the same short code, but it might be T Gerace on there. Um, but you'll find me. And uh, uh, Twitter and LinkedIn are probably the best places to follow yeah, me. Um, and uh, email if they want. It's just T-O-M at S-K-Y-W-O-R-D.com. See, that's how you know, that's how you know you have no fear right there. Just throwing out no the fear, man. on a podcast. You know there you go. Awesome. Well, Tom, this has been great. I don't know if you've seen the clock, but literally a whole day has passed us by. Flew by, man. Flew by. It's been a real pleasure. And I can't thank you enough, Casey. This has been really one of the most fun interviews I've had. Thank you. Absolutely. We'll have to have you come back or, you know, I'm, I'm going to be signing up. You'll see me at some of these, uh, these events here because just story, just that, you know, I just telling that, you know, and it's like marketing with a purpose, you know? Yeah. Let, let me know. I'd love to connect there and maybe we can connect with uh, Bob for a drink or something after the show. Yeah. Well, thanks great. again. I appreciate hey, it. Thank you.
you know, for Appreciate everyone else it. out there, you know, if you learned something and if you didn't, shame on you, open your ears. There's a thousand things going on here. If you learn something, share this with someone else, you know, pass that message along. Maybe write a story about it, share it on LinkedIn. Uh, and this has been the Hardcore Marketing Show. We will see you all next time. Yeah.